Hello, and welcome to Talking and Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hello. This month, we are making some predictions. How will the Jewish community and Jewish communal life change in this year as we hopefully transition out of COVID isolation? And for our second segment, we're going to be talking about the prayer for our country. As politics and violence rage around us, how are we thinking about praying for this country, for the United States or for other countries? And what does it actually mean to pray for our country? We wanted to start off with uh, thinking about predictions, since that is a thing that people often do in the beginning of a secular new year, although not so much in a Jewish new year. JCA had a great piece called Jewish Life in 2021, Predictions about the Future of Politics, Culture, and Anti-Semitism. Um, I love that, like, their things <laughs> that they cover, they seem to consider as politics, culture, and then anti-Semitism is like a whole genre of their coverage. It is neither politics nor culture also. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, Separate. <laughs> <laughs> it's like its own whole thing. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, but I, I... I was really interested in what their reporters were were thinking about in this piece and um, what all of you are thinking about as you're thinking about how Jewish life might look different in the short or long term. There was one piece um, in the JTA article that I just really wanted to underscore that I will be interested to see in 2021, which is basically whether... Um, whether we experience a wave of synagogue closures or Jewish cultural institutions closing just in the fallout of the economic crisis brought on by the pandemic. And I think one interesting thing for me that I'll be looking for is whether closures are coupled with any interesting mergers or new partnerships. I mean, I think that's something that we've seen throughout history as synagogues have closed. Often you get you know, some of these really long named synagogues are usually the product of some sort of merger. I'll be looking to see where new partnerships emerge. And I think another area of closures that I'm really concerned about, but hopeful that we won't see, I worry that if some if Jewish summer camps can't reopen this summer, that we're going to see a lot of camps closing. Um, it seems like the data suggest that it's safe to have summer camps. And obviously, if there's widespread vaccination, then that should be a thing that we can go ahead and do. But as a veteran camper and somebody who really believes in that, in, in the role of Jewish camps in our American Jewish culture, I, I worry about camps surviving. So those are just two pieces that I, I wanted to start with. I had not thought that much about either of those. Those are both great. Zahava, what about you? I have a couple of predictions or things I have my eye on, but I actually, there's, there was something mentioned in the JTA article that I wanted, um, to maybe ask you guys and particularly Mimi, given your work with older adults, but both of you about, which is there was a quick mention in the article about the acceleration in our loss of Holocaust survivors. And I know that this is something that people who work in Holocaust education and Holocaust remembrance have been keeping their eye on for a long time, obviously, that as survivors pass away, that we'll lose our ability to hear firsthand testimony and we'll have to sort of rethink what our remembrance looks like and consists of. But I don't have a vision of that, but it does make sense to me that that rate of loss 
probably accelerated a lot this year, both as a direct consequence of COVID and as sort of an indirect consequence as isolation and, and lack of sort of regular medical checkups and things like that might be affecting um, people's well-being. Have you guys seen any first stages or like early versions of more innovative or more um, post-live testimony versions of Holocaust remembrance that you think we might see people building on coming up? It's hmm. an interesting question. Um, I, as you were talking, I was wondering pretty much along the same lines, whether we're going to see more people using, I know Steven Spielberg invested a lot of time and money into an archive of people's experiences. And I'm I'm wondering whether we're going to see those utilized more, those recordings um, utilized more in Holocaust education. I don't know if I've seen anything great out there, though. Yeah, I haven't seen anything. And it is interesting, particularly because we're having this so much concern about anti-Semitism. And I think in some ways quite warranted. Um, and just like thinking about for our second segment, the attack on the Capitol and kind of like a lot of the very blatant anti-Semitic things that were on display as part of that. It seems like a kind of natural fit for some useful Holocaust education. Well, I guess what I have seen is actually a lot of interesting things on Jew on social media that are not really related to um, survivor testimony. So like um, I follow the Auschwitz Memorial on Twitter and they tweet out um, photos of people who died at Auschwitz every day and like a little you know, information about where they were born and when they came to Auschwitz and when they died. And it is very powerful and it does seem to be reaching a different population than some of the kind of like traditional um, Holocaust education that I was a part of as a child. So I feel like there's different kind of channels and venues for these things. And I, I mean, I, part of me does wonder if the survivor testimony, I think it's very important, but I also think that like, at least in my experience, it was sometimes used relatively poorly. And so I do think that now there are fewer survivors, but the stories are, I think, relatively well documented and there are people thinking in different ways about um, how we tell the stories and how we make the stories relevant to people. Um, and I am seeing some cool things around that and some things that I think are really interesting and, and feel fresh. So Hava, I wonder if I might piggyback on, um, uh, on that note around the loss, the, the accelerating loss of Holocaust survivors, which is um, I think it'll be interesting in the Jewish social services sector to see how that loss impacts certain institutions. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically Jewish family and children's services across the country, and I know many institutions in Israel similarly are responsible for handing out money from the German government through the claims conference. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see how organizations might pivot or, or go under uh, with dwindling numbers of survivors. Yeah. Well, to take things in a very different direction, I mean, I think that the main way in which I've been thinking about, um, you know, changing Jewish life post COVID or 
in the waning months, one hopes of COVID just because I, I'm on my shul board and we're having a lot of conversations about sort of the, the role the shul plays, the direction of who serves whom in what way sort of shifts so that all of a sudden one of the big value adds that shuls have is their access to their community rather than the other way around, that the shul as hub for people, um, as connector for people, even in the absence of people actually physically coming, but the fact that the shul has these connections to all these different people and all of these different groups, that that is something that shuls can leverage as a hub. So shul as clearing house of sort of um, chesed and community service needs for different people who are offering and receiving. Um, shuls as sort of connectors to families with um similar concerns or similar age children who might not be running into each other in an organic way right now, but the shul has relationships with people, um, you know, shuls as facilitators of, you know, things that are separate from the life of the shul itself, but simply by virtue of existing as a membership organization with close relationships with um, multi-generational and in some cases sort of diverse in different ways, groups of people, um, that shul as hub and connector and sort of networking enterprise for different purposes is feels to me like a real next generation direction that shuls may take as they both because they've had the experience of trying to pivot and remain relevant in people's lives now, but also because people have seen what their lives are like when they don't come to shul physically and think of shul in that way in their lives and that shuls may have to really work to stay relevant now that people have experienced an alternative mode of relating to their shul. So that's a quasi prediction, I think. Somewhat related to that. I'm not sure if I would say that this is full on prediction, but I think it is likely to happen. Basically, so many shuls have started to have to put so much of their programming online and that has made a lot of that programming accessible to people who might not otherwise be able to come because it's, you know, in a building that they can't get to or at a time that they can't get to or they're not a member and they don't even know it exists. But now they can come because there's just a link on the website that's like, this is what we're talking about. You can come. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said that they were at a shul book club meeting and somebody else there was basic. They were trying to schedule their next meeting and somebody else there was like, well, my Zoom calendar is pretty full because I'm going to Zoom programming at three different shuls in like different places in the country. But like she found it and it looks good and she wants to go do it. And she's got time since she's isolating at home as an older person. But she can now access all this kinds of, um, you know, interesting programming conversations that she otherwise couldn't. And that was just really exciting to hear. A long time ago now, I used to work for myjewishlearning.com. And a lot of the people who we heard from when I was working there were people who were Jewish and living in pretty remote places where they didn't have access to a local Jewish community, um, or they had like a very small Jewish community that wasn't very active. And so they were using My Jewish Learning to do a lot of kind of the Jewish connecting that they otherwise didn't have. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about for those people, how awesome it is that so much of Jewish life has moved in some ways to something that's accessible to people who aren't necessarily local. And it's not just like, you know, people who feel, uh, you know, that they're immunocompromised and they can't um, come to things or, 
people who are living in communities where there um, aren't having live events, but it's also, you know, people who have disabilities who, who were never able to attend these events because they were not accessible to them. And now they can. And that's really exciting and cool. And I have been thinking a lot about how I hope that for my own sake, I would really like Shabbat services at my shul to start again because that are not online because I just miss it a lot. But I do hope that a lot of the things that have moved online stay in some part online so that they can be more accessible to more people. Definitely. Hard agree with that one, Tamar. My mom has been away from her community since the start of the pandemic, but every Shabbat has been able to join um, services and even an Oneg after services with her friends at home and Torah study. So I think I think it's been a huge way for communities to stay connected no matter where people are. I'm curious which... Um, in addition to some degree of Jewish learning and maybe services, I'm wondering which life cycle events might continue to live online. Um, I'm wondering if the Zoom bris and the, even the Zoom shiva call will remain post-pandemic. I never want to attend another Zoom funeral. I mean, obviously attending funerals is never fun, but like I have been to a few and I think that like, the weird thing where like you've just finished a funeral and then you're like at home in your house and you are like in, you haven't had any of the time to like be around other people who are sad or like have any space where you move from like being at a funeral to not being at a funeral anymore is so bizarre and jarring and I hate it. <laughs> and I, I understand why it's really important right now, but, and I know a lot of people who are like, I would never have been able to go to the funeral if it wasn't for the Zoom funeral. And I totally get that. And I also find it really upsetting and I don't want to go to one ever again. You know, Tamar, that makes me think about the fact that physical presence creates these transition moments and these sort of discrete spaces and times that Zoom attendance, that online, that being in your home and also at a program really, um, really collapses all those spaces. So think about if you, if you go to a funeral and, and there are sort of traditional ritual moments, it's not just that like you then get in your car and drive home and have some time to take a breath or while you're on the subway home, you, you, you're processing, but also that there's a moment where ritually, um, as you're leaving a cemetery, you wash your hands in a particular way, right? And that there's a, there's a ritual marker that I was doing this and now I'm exiting this experience and I'm about to do something else. Um, the same thing with, in a much smaller way, right? Physically attending a Jewish class, a shiur, for me, usually comes with somebody like handing out a little like source sheet paper packet. And that like, that's the thing that I can focus my eyes on if I'm not looking at the speaker. And like, my attention isn't divided in the same way if I'm, uh, if I'm trying to like zoom at the speaker and they're screen sharing some sources or whatever, but like, I probably also have another computer window open that like pulls my attention to go do something else. Like the, the fact is my, my Jewish life before this 
was much less about like split attention and lack of transitions and lack of discrete spaces. And uh, especially as somebody who was working remotely before the pandemic, that's um, I was very familiar with that experience. And I I really mourn having it sort of invade my Jewish life. Does anybody want to make any predictions having to do with either anti-Semitism or the fact that we're about to have a Jewish first gentleman? I do think there's something weird about the degree of like quelling over Doug Emhoff from corners of the Jewish world who would normally decry intermarriage. Like there's something very strange about that. Yeah. I feel like people give him a get out of jail free card because like he and Kamala Harris are obviously not going to have children together. So, I mean, not that I think that anyone who is intermarried or has an interfaith family should go to jail. Like, I just I think that (laughs) that is the the approach that some people have who might normally be super critical of it are less critical of it because like he has children who are unambiguously Jewish and then he married somebody who is not Jewish. And that that kind of like makes people less concerned about it. I agree that I have also been like. That is a very interesting response that you are having to something I thought that you would be against (laughs) Jewish person. I know. Yeah. But I mean, I think it'll be like fun to see what happens to sort of like the vaguely Jewishy moments in the White House year. Right. Like the traditional White House Russia Shana message, the Hanukkah party, the Seder, whatever. Like there are like Jewish annual cycle moments that are part of the White House year. And I think it'll be fun to sort of see whether like Doug Emhoff is always leading the Seder and lighting the candles or whether like or whether the president still does stuff like that or how that's going to like uh, shake out. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That will be delightful. (laughs) (laughs) I have been totally thinking about that because I have been looking for something to be delighted about. And I think that I. Um, I am, it's interesting because like Ivanka and Jared Trump are Jewish, but there hasn't been a lot of like them being publicly Jewish of the past four years. Like they haven't put out like a Hanukkah video the way that Kamala Harris and Doug Emhoff did. And so I am actually like excited for for that. And honestly, like I'm excited for like, this is an interfaith family and they like do Jewish things and like, it's cool. You know, they're into it. Like, I just, I'm, I appreciate, um, that kind of thing. And it's usually, I mean, to the extent that I've seen them do it thus far, it's been done, um, in a way that I appreciate. And so I'm excited about that. And I think I just from, from the little bit that they have already done, I suspect there will be quite a bit of it, which I actually think is great. And I actually do think connects actually to anti-Semitism. Like I think the Biden administration is going to be looking for a lot of ways to um, (laughs) be as like, Hey, look, we are not anti-Semitic as possible. Um, And I'm, super curious as to what that will look like. But I, I do predict that there's going to be some very like clear posturing of like, we love the Jews. (laughs) Um, and I think that's going to be really 
strange and interesting. Well, it's actually a very Jewish cabinet on the scale of things. There are like a lot of Jews, at least, well, pending confirmations. There are there are many Jews who are the designees for different um, cabinet secretaries. And on the subject of that, I don't know if this is a prediction or like a, a wish slash request out there, but <laughs> this could be the year where we all learn something about Latino Jews. Um, which like, I know very little about Latino Jews, but the designee for the Department of Homeland Security is Alejandro Mayorkas, who is, um, a Cuban Jew, um, a Cuban American Jew. And like the, like his father's a Sephardic Jew. His mother is like Romanian Cuban. And he represents what, I don't know how common that kind of combined Sephardic, Ashkenazic, Cuban, Jewish heritage is. But I know so little about Latino Jews and how they conceive of themselves as Latino or not. And um, I think especially this 2020 presidential election revealed some interesting um complexities in Latino identity that people in popular reporting uh, were tending to gloss over sometimes. And I would love to see that brought to the Jewish world and uh, have this be an opportunity for us all to learn something. I guess I have like two, these aren't specific, well, one specific um, prediction when it comes to like the Jewish politics, which is that I I think we're going to see the Jewish left and Jewish progressive institutions Um, which have spent a lot of their time and energy focusing on getting Trump out and getting progressive politicians elected and mobilizing their communities. I think we're going to see a lot more climate. I hope we're going to see a lot more climate activism from Jewish organizations. And in particular, I am excited to watch what happens from an organization called Dayenu, um, a Jewish call to climate action. So I think I I think we're going to see a lot more of that in 2021. And on the right, I am very curious to see what Jewish organizations that have um Jewish organizations and politicians who have endorsed or supported Donald Trump, I'm curious to see how they distance themselves or don't um from his actions and his administration. I think that I I imagine there's going to be a lot of uh, gymnastics trying to uh, bend and swerve their way out of past statements um, when when all is said and done. I hope that's true. I mean, you think the opposite? You think they'll dig their heels in? I don't know, but I think that in the same way that quote unquote mainstream right-wing politicians have been sort of taken by surprise that like right-wing followers who actually listen to things that Trump said, and now they seem to believe them and are doing, I mean, ultimately like the, the people who have been riding with Trump at this point are no longer doing it for convenience. And I think that separating out what the institutions are doing from what their membership and communities are doing, I think is going to be a really, really tough pivot. And I hope that there is a successful, uh, you know, backflip back into the world of bipartisanship from organizations that have historically been bipartisan, but the people that were won over to one side, it's going to be really, really hard to, um, to pivot back. I think. 
All right. Well, for a second topic, we are recording this show on January 10th. And we have just finished a super intense week in American politics. And um, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is the prayer for our country that I have historically said when I still attended synagogue in person, Lotus, many, many months ago. Um, And just thinking about like, what is it? What do I want for this country? And what is it? What does it mean to pray for this country? It's funny because like thoughts and prayers is such a like joke slash meme. Um, but I like, I am a person who prays. And so I do think about like, what do I even, what am I even praying for? How am I doing that praying? And in particular, I've been thinking about like the literal prayer for our country because it is something that is like a kind of strange part of the liturgy for me. And so I'm curious, like, about that particular prayer, like if you if it is part of your observance when you like are are in the shul or at home, and then we have looked at a couple of other recently written prayers for the United States, and just thinking about like how do you feel about those, and and how are you thinking about if at all incorporating anything having to do with this like really intense time that we're in into your liturgy. To kick this off on a slightly lighter note, I will say that since moving to Canada, every single week when the rabbi gets up and prays for Queen Elizabeth, I laugh. I just, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> I let out a snicker every time. Her Majesty the Queen. And I'm like, sorry, Queen Elizabeth. I, no disrespect meant, but I'm just like not used to praying for I'm the sure Queen. I'm sure she does listen to this podcast. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I watch The Crown. Maybe she listens to the podcast. <laughs> it goes both ways, right? Yeah. It's true. So the prayer that is in most, I think, traditional services, it's not so much a prayer for the country as it is a prayer for the government. And I think that that is like an interesting direction to plumb a little bit. When we're praying for the country, we're really praying for the government. And most, at least, I don't know what, um, what Nusach, what like specific liturgy um, you guys are used to, but most Orthodox Sidurim include praying for the president and the vice president and all of the officers of the government. And like that one hits differently depending on who the president is. And it feels odd and it feels derived maybe from a time when like Jewish welfare was more about the sufferance of the person in power than I like to think of the countries in which we currently live. Yeah, that makes me think of the, uh, to call back to an old episode of ours, the Fiddler on the Roof prayer for the czar. May God bless and keep the czar far away from us. Um, And that is like, I have thought about that very often when talking about the president over the last four years. But I agree that at least in the conservative Sidur, the prayer is very much for the government. And it actually says for our, go- for our government, for its, lead- for its leaders and advisors, and for all who are who exercise just, just and rightful authority. authority. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I like that. Interesting. Yeah. It's actually like 
quite specific and powerful in that way that it is not just like whoever's in, in charge, like good job. It's like if someone is good and is in charge, we hope they continue to do good. And if they're not good and in charge, we hope they start to do good, which is like actually a very specific approach, I would say, to the prayer. So I actually like it, I, though I will say I can't believe I can't remember if I've talked about this on the show before, but I think it is weird that it is often the thing that is said by people who are not Jewish at like bar bat mitzvahs because and I think it is done because it's in English. But at least in the conservative Sidur, it begins our God and God of our ancestors, which like if you're not Jewish, like that's not you. (laughs) So it's weird to me that sometimes there is a non-Jewish person up there saying it. But overall, I actually find it to be a very powerful and evocative prayer that I have felt particularly moved by in the last four years. Like it is a moment where I have felt like a real kavana, a real intention of like, I am praying for this right now. Like I really, really want this. So Tamar, is this a prayer that you would recite when you're praying alone? No. (laughs) Because for me, this is like such a synagogue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I like can't imagine this situation. I would say that. Same for you, Zahava. I I agree. And I think because it's funny because most things that are synagogue only are like Dvarim Shebik Dusha, like things that must be said in the presence of a minion. And and those things are usually especially sacred and especially old. So to apply that to something that's clearly much more recent and often said in English, I think in many Orthodox schools, it's said in Hebrew anyway, but, but it feels sort of weird to put it in that category. I think part of it is that it feels like a prayer, the community unity says like as in we the jewish people are a presence in this country as some kind of block and we are concerned about how the country will treat jews like they're sort of i don't know about the the version that um that's recited in conservative schools because i'm not familiar with it but i i think there's i've seen in different countries orthodox sidurim versions that are along the lines of and have them deal truly with Israel or have them deal justly with the Jewish people or something that feels very, we as a group are concerned about our minority status, frankly, is sort of like the undercurrent of it. And so it doesn't feel like something you would say alone. But it also, like I said, it feels very, very much like a throwback to a particular kind of Jewish citizenship. Yeah, it's interesting. The conservative prayer for our country doesn't do that. Like it doesn't mention us as Jews. It actually says, may citizens of all races and creeds forge common bond in true harmony to banish all hatred and bigotry and to safeguard the ideals and free institutions, which are the pride and glory of this country. I just have to say, I say that the pride and glory of our country, and I just, I feel like this surge of emotion and like even tears come up, like the ideals and free institutions are the pride and glory of our country. I feel it every time. Yeah, it's, it is beautiful. But, but I would, the reason I brought that up is because it says may citizens of all races done creeds and it was pointed out to be now probably over a decade ago that that's actually not very inclusive. And so now I always say may residents of all um, races and creeds because not everyone in this country is a citizen. Um, and I don't think that the, those things should be limited to people who have citizenship. So, yeah, I mean, even it, which I think is actually like it's not it's not a sentiment that I think is exclusive to Jews. Like the at least the conservative one is very much like 
we celebrate this particular vision of what this country is. And we hope it keeps being that. But it's not about like, and we hope that it is used to like keep us safe as Jews. But I do think that like, obviously, in the last four years, I've had a lot of different feelings about being Jewish in this country. And certainly, like, it almost feels like I want another, a different prayer. That's like the prayer for like, when you're feeling fear or grief about your minority status. But that is different than like a prayer where I'm like, okay, country, like, please stay good and don't turn into one of the bad ones or don't get any worse than you already are. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I looked today at a bunch of the different of different kind of prayers for a country that have been written by people recently and are published on Ritual Well. And as you might expect, they tend toward the kind of like sadness and grief. And there's like a, one that was written by some children that's more like what you would expect. I don't, I don't say this in a negative way, but it's very much like what you would expect to see written on the wall in a kindergarten. It's like, we should be kind and we should treat others with kindness and we should share things and like, we should take care of each other and that kind of thing, which I think is true. Um, but like, also I was like, I don't know why this doesn't feel like a prayer to me. Like that's actually kind of like an interesting distinction, distinction of like, What's the difference between like a wish and a prayer? I I did feel like I actually want a prayer for my country to be patriotic. Like I want it to be like, let's do this. But obviously like not, not in a, not when I don't agree, like only for the parts of the country that I'm proud of, not for the stuff that's bad, (laughs) which I guess is kind of threading the needle quite finely. It was pointed out to me. Um, a while back by Rabbi David Walkenfeld, who's the rabbi of ASBI um, in Lakeview in Chicago, pre-Trump administration, that the text that um, Orthodox communities often say is very geared towards the individual in power and doesn't do a lot to recognize that we are a democracy and that we are all individuals in power. Um in a, in a way. And that's not something that's represented. And, um, actually in the, in the later days of the Obama administration, he got his, um, his community to just switch to a different text that doesn't call out individual officers, which I'm sure, uh, many people in the show were, were glad about shortly afterwards. Um, but he also pointed me towards um, a a version of the prayer written by um, Dr. Esther Fuchs, who's a congregant in at Ramat Ora in um, New York City, um, that she had written as part and presented in a DAC conference about twenty years ago. That actually explicitly calls this out. So, and I'll we can share a link to this. Um, it's in the Open Sitter Project website, so we can share a link to it in the show notes. But it says, um, I'll just read part of the opening. God whose kingdom is a kingdom spanning all eternity, who commanded all humanity to create just governments, who inspired the prophet Jeremiah to instruct the people of Israel to pray for the well-being of governments in the lands in which they reside. May God preserve and protect our democracy. Bless and help the elected and appointed officials of the government of the United States to carry out their duties consistent with the Constitution and Bill of Rights in a manner that sustains and safeguards the freedoms guaranteed they're under. Um, and it goes on to, you know, may God inspire them with the courage to defend the few from the tyranny of the many, to use the might of the United States for good throughout the world, um, et cetera, et cetera, so that it can be said that they heed the admonition, justice, justice, you shall pursue. May this be the will of God and let us say, amen. 
What I like about this is that it's very much in the traditional formulation of this kind of prayer, right? There's a biblical reference, right? It's, you know, we do this because we are advised to by the prophets. We come back around to, to a verse about the kind of society we want. In the middle, we talk about the modern um, structure in which we find ourselves and, and how we want to use it for the best. So it feels both very modern and relevant and um, specific to the United States. States, while at the same time being very traditional and honoring that structure. And I thought it was really beautiful. That is beautiful. But also I have to say that if I was black and I was like at a shul and they were like, we love the constitution, I would be like, really? The document says I'm three fifths of a person. Like, I, I don't know. There's something about calling out specific documents, which are obviously problematic, where I'm like, just like, I don't want you to call out specific people. I also think you might want to think a little more globally about what does that document actually say? I'm assuming they mean the amendments too, but I know, but still, (laughs) I mean, not to say that like the Torah doesn't also have some things in it that make me feel uncomfortable, but that is, yeah, No, I I I guess you, I don't know, feels a little weird to me, but I also, I, I do like that a lot. But we're talking about this as though the only way to pray for our country is in this sort of uh, formalized communal sense. But I'm curious to hear whether in your own personal prayer practices in a private, spontaneous way, you guys think about praying for the country. Is that something that you think of doing in your personal prayer practice? I have to say something like extremely hokey and also unoriginal, which is that like, like I, just like I said, I would never just like sit, sit at home and say the prayer for our country. I, I don't like have a, like an, a, a liturgy approach to praying for our country, but I do feel like in the, 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 the thing that I do to serve Judaism in a lot of ways is praying and the thing that I do to serve my country in a lot of ways is protesting and voting. And I recognize that Abraham Joshua Heschel like said that before I did. <laughs> but like, I do think that like when I, there is something that feels sacred to me about protesting and particularly um this year when like I have spent so little time communally when I have been at protests, I have found myself really, really moved by them. And it has made me, I mean, and it's interesting because like in a lot of ways, it's like you're going to be around a lot of people. Often there's singing or chanting, like you're there because you all believe in something. Like it's very similar to the whole reason I go to shul. It's also, it's also social, right? Like I know I'm going to see a lot of people that I agree with who are, who I'm friends with. Same at shul. Like, it's interesting to me how I don't think they could replace each other. Like in some ways they're function, they function very differently for me, but in other ways it's quite similar. Um, and so when I don't like do a lot of like praying for our country, the same way that I like might say halal on Rosh Chodesh, but like, I do think that I'm praying for my country when I like go to a protest. I like that answer. I want to adopt that for my own. That's where, (laughs) that's how I pray for my country. I find that my personal prayer practice is 
much more personal, though obviously when my personal thoughts are sort of consumed by the political or the national, then it comes up in my like, but not in any liturgy, more in personal moments of reflection or in maybe even the reason that I'm turning to prayer in the first place, because I don't have like a daily regular practice, but something more in moments of distress, joy, need, etc. I actually have one song or nigun that I've really turned to, which is Joey Weisenberg's Lincoln's Nigun. It's very American in its melody, and it was inspired by the movie Lincoln. I find that when I am concerned about the country and my thoughts are turning towards prayer, that nigun can really just lift the emotions for me so much. Not sure if that answers your questions, Ahaba, but that's where I put it. That's where I put my prayer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would, I would agree with you or associate myself with, with the idea that praying for my country mostly comes out in moments of sort of stress or anxiety or worry about the country. And more just because, you know, I, I have a daily prayer practice. So if I have thoughts that need to go somewhere in the best case scenario, they can, they can come out through those prayers. I I wouldn't claim that I'm the best prayer concentrator these days, but when, you know, when I have, when I have, uh, stresses or anxieties or, or hopes that need to come out through something, I do often find that the existing liturgy of Shimona Esrei, the, the like silent prayer that includes these requests and and blessings about specific different parts of life and society, that there's usually a spot for those things to go. So I often find myself in, um, there's a a paragraph about bring back good judges and good advisors. Um, and I find sometimes that my uh, fears about governance go there, um, or in requests for peace, that my thoughts sometimes go in there. And over the last while, I've, I think, complicated my notion of what it means to ask for peace, that I've always thought of it as an external enemies kind of thing. But I've come to think of it also as, as a, a prayer about internal divisions in my community, my society, my Jewish nation, my, my national, you know, my my secular country nation, even though I don't have sort of a, a liturgical representation of a prayer for the country in my personal practice, I do feel like the liturgy gives me um, little valves for particular um, thoughts, hopes, fears about um, about the country. This is a, was such a nice discussion about something that I feel like is kind of rare for Jews to talk about, which is like, what is the personal valence that you put on a particular prayer or how do you think about a a specific thing with a Jewish lens? It's just so interesting to hear about how other people do it. Because it's funny how we can have like a liturgy that a lot of people are saying, but really everybody's coming at it from their own angle and has a different kind of theoretical approach to it and um, logistical even approach to it. Um, so I'm so glad we got to talk about this. Agreed. I also do want to shout out um, Ritual Well, which has so many great prayers that people have written for our country. And I also want to shout out the prayer for the queen, which I always laughed at <laughs> when I was in England and heard it. And um, so I'm glad to hear that uh, it's still making people giggle. 
But I also, I did a little research about it today and there were versions that were a lot more monarchist and more like crush her enemies and like may her step always be the exalted. Very different than the way I think it comes now. Um, And so it's interesting to see it. But the version that's on Open Sea Door of the Prayer for the Queen is the version for Queen Victoria. So it's kind of interesting to to read that. And also to think about the fact that like the prayer for the queen will probably become the prayer for the king in in our lifetime. And that's going to be a big change um, at some point. So interesting to think about that. All right. Well, should we move along to our endorsements? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, Mimi, what do you have to endorse this month? So I want to endorse two things. One that's related to, well, sort of to the political moment that we're living in and the Jewish experience of the political moment. Um, I thought there was a really great op-ed in um, the foreword by... Hanna Leibovitz and Beth Pikowski. Um, Hanna Leibovitz is an Orthodox Jew. Beth Pikowski is an Evangelical Christian. Um, and the op-ed's called, We're an Orthodox Jew and an Evangelical Christian, and we saw the attack on the Capitol coming. Um, and they just really talk about far-right trends in their own communities that they've seen growing and trace it back even to the Bush years, giving some sort of historical context in their own um, personal experiences. I follow Hannah Leibovitz on Twitter and I'll share her Twitter handle in our show notes. I think she has been doing a lot of interesting thinking about the role of Donald Trump in her orthodox circles. So that's one endorsement. And then the second is on a lighter note, I hope, but I'm reading a book called Pleasure Activism by Adrian Marie Brown. I'm really enjoying it. It's a series of essays. Um many of them by Adrienne Marie Brown, but some by other people. And it's really all about, for me at least, what I'm bringing in is that it's all about the role of the erotic and how that can be actually politically um, a, a type of political activism. So a lot of it is referencing Black feminist thought, and I've been playing around with what's the what's the Jewish feminist thought on the erotic and where would I look for that? Um, and how politically aware or not would that be? So these are just ideas that are rolling around for me as I read this really great book, which I highly endorse. Cool. That sounds awesome. Um, Zahava, what do you have to endorse? So I am endorsing two articles, two, um, well, one article and and one sort of personal essay opinion piece. So there have been a couple of pieces in JTA recently about this thing, uh, called the Kranjek test. I may be mispronouncing it named for Danielle Kranjek, who is, uh, the Jewish educator who, um, proposed it. It's, it's that if you are ever putting together a source sheet, um, that includes more than one text, that you must include at least one non-male voice um, in in your presentation of the sources. And so there is a piece from December 30th by Abigail Halpern called I Resisted the Call to Include Non-Male Voices Every Time I Taught Torah, Then I Tried It. And I really like this because she 
had a lot of the same sort of practical reservations that I did, which is that it would feel like tokenism, that a a lot of areas of learning from which women have historically not uh, been excluded, uh, that you'll sort of struggle to find good quality sort of sources and and the, the quote unquote women's Torah will wind up looking inferior to the men's Torah on your source sheet and that it's something that you would struggle to do well and that it might not advance the cause quite in the same way that it was envisioned. But hearing her experience of trying it and, and sort of what she discovered about the sources she was able to find and also the experience of teaching those sources um, was really interesting to me. So I recommend that piece by Abigail Halpern. And then coincidentally, uh, a couple of days later, on January 2nd, NPR had an article called Where Are the Women? Uncovering the Lost Works of Female Renaissance Artists, which is about an effort to sort of dig through like the attics and storage spaces of various museums and galleries and private collections to find Renaissance art by female artists. It sort of made me reflect on the question of like, who has the status to be part of the canon? Because any one of these women is sort of inherently going to be thought of as a minor artist because they were not featured and lauded and given the attention of critics and things like that. And therefore they are inherently minor and not that important, quote unquote, in the canon and and bringing that back and thinking about what it would look like in my fear of tokenism and including female voices, because you need a certain stature to be sort of worthy of being part of somebody's learning and Torah teaching and do the female sources that are being brought in here feel like tokenism because those women don't have the stature? But of course, there's a circular problem there where you'll never uh, you'll never afford high quality Torah, the stature that it should have if you're worried about it already having status uh, in in the community of learners. So. I just felt like these two pieces were really complimentary. So uh, we'll share them in show notes. So Abigail Halpern's piece, I resisted the call to include non-male voices every time I taught Torah, then I tried it in JTA. And then where are the women uncovering the lost works of female Renaissance artists in NPR? I am going to endorse a piece from um, Hey Alma called Anti-Semitism Cow is Finally Ready to Talk. A Twitter account set out to moo at anti-Semitism. Alma asked the human behind it whether it succeeded and why it stopped. This was actually not a Twitter account that I was familiar with before this piece, but just like reading about the the idea behind it and um, why, why it kind of worked and then why it stopped was really interesting to me. And I think that... Um, just thinking about how I feel like I grew up in a time where I thought that it was relatively clear to me when I was seeing anti-Semitism and now it feels way less clear. Um, like there are obviously still plenty of super clear situations, but there's also a lot of, um, a lot of things where it's like, it's not necessarily overt anti-Semitism, but it also kind of is a dog whistle for anti-Semites. And like, how do you classify that? Um, and I was reading something recently about somebody who um, who is Jewish, whose father, who is also Jewish, has been like really gotten into some of these conspiracy theories that have anti-Semitic roots and this person is like, how, how do I deal with this? Like my father is Jewish and he believes these things. 
that are anti-Semitic conspiracies, they're just like not overt enough that he isn't so aware of them because they're like about George Soros and whatever. I think it was just, it's really interesting. Um, And so having someone who was kind of dedicated to this task of like, I want to tell you when it's anti-Semitism is is just like an interesting um, thing to, to try and, and, and hearing also about, you know, why they stopped is, is also super interesting. So, and just made me think a lot about like, what actually is the right thing to do in a situation where you hear someone say or, or witness somebody say something that is like kind of anti-Semitic or in the direction of anti-Semitism, but you don't think that they are an anti-Semite. They just like kind of have picked up on something, some like for lack of a better term, trash that somebody else left lying around. And like, how do you deal with that? Um, I think is something that I have been thinking about, thinking about a ton this year. And so it's interesting to read about somebody else who's, who's thinking about that. Um, and it is by Molly Tolsky on Hey Alma. That sounds really interesting. I will definitely check that out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really good. And it's called Anti-Semitism Cow is Finally Ready to Talk, which is also just a great thank you all so much for listening if you have a minute it would be great for you to leave a review for us on apple Podcasts, or you can let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode you can leave a comment on a post on our facebook page search for jewish public media on our website jpmedia.co and then choose talking and shul from the list of podcasts you can also donate to jewish public media at jpmedia.co which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can bring you new episodes a month. Thank you so much, Sahava. Thank you both. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. Talk to you next month. Thank you so much to Daniel Zena, who um, edits our podcast. And I will see you both next month.